Welcome to another episode of Bump, Birth and Beyond, a podcast proudly brought to you by Tiny Hearts Education and hosted by myself, Dr. Joseph Scroy. Today, we're, brought, uh, we're uh, proud to present Jess Bilko. Uh, she's had a little baby, Lara, born on the 18th of November, 2019, at the tender age of 25 weeks and five days. Got to give her the five days. <laughs> Welcome, Jess. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. I think that's quite good to, to talk to you about, um, you know, Lara, bringing Lara into the world and obviously a, a preemie baby as well. Tell us a little bit about, you know, becoming pregnant and tell us, you know, sort of how long you guys have been trying to be, become pregnant for and, and you know, what, 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 what the thought of being a mother was all about. Well, my husband Matt and I had been uh, actually trying for over a year uh, and we'd gone down the path of doing all the extra investigations as to perhaps why it wasn't happening for us. Um, And the week that she was conceived, we were told by our um, fertility specialist that it probably just wasn't going to happen for us. We, We got some answers as to why it wasn't happening and she said, look, uh, you guys want to be parents, Um, let's press on with IVF if that's something that you're wanting to pursue soonish. Um, so we had kind of resigned ourselves to the fact that falling pregnant naturally wasn't just, go- just wasn't going to happen for us. Um, and we'd done the, you know, throw our hands up in the air, right, okay, let's, uh, let's get on with it. And we had started um, all the IVF prep uh, and extra tests and things like that. Uh, and little did we know that little Lara was baking away happily. It's actually very interesting. I think a lot of my patients are the same. I, you know, I often think that in the fertility journey, part of the, the anxiety about trying to become pregnant, I think I've said this before, but I always think that women sort of live in two-week in, in two week cycles, the day yeah. that they have a period until the day they ovulate and then from ovulation until the time that they become pregnant. And, um, you know, I think that that level of anxiety and stress sometimes does play a part in not being able to become pregnant. And then the realisation that IVF is the way to go sort of allows everything to relax and then people go, oh, thank God, yep, and then they become pregnant. Yeah, that was certainly our story. And I also found that during this whole COVID thing when IVF sort of stopped for a little while, I had a few patients of mine who, you know, couldn't do IVF and I suspect, you know, part of that being stuck at home and hopefully having a bit more sex, they, they got pregnant, so it's quite good. Um, so obviously you've been trying for a while and, and sure enough, Lara was in there when you were just about to start IVF and so it, well, tell us a little bit about how you found out. Were you waiting for your first period and, and never came and Bob's your uncle, there she was? No, well, this is... Um it's kind of indicative of how her whole pregnancy and birth went. Um, it's a good little story, actually. I'm a paramedic um, and I was at work one day and I had two colleagues, both men, um, separate from each other, say to me that they thought I was pregnant. Um, one of them said to me, Jeez, Jess, you're really glowing. Are you sure you're not pregnant? And I said, <laughs> I wish. No, definitely not pregnant. Uh, and then that afternoon... Another colleague said to me um, as I had eaten all of the contents of my lunchbox well before I was supposed to have, he said, you're pregnant. And I said, no. Again, I said, no, I'm not. (laughs) And he said, no, it always starts. You always get really hungry. 
Um, and lo and behold, I thought on the way home, look, I'll just grab a pregnancy test just to, you know, add to the big pile of them that I had already done that had been negative uh, in the months prior. Um, and yeah, it was positive, very positive. And so did you ask that same colleague what the numbers were for Tat Slotter that next week? <laughs> I actually saw him the next day and I said, you're not going to believe this. And he stood up in the emergency department that we're uh, all waiting to be triaged in and said, I think I just became a grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's awesome. Yeah. Um, so first part of the – now, any any history in terms of your past gynecological history? Had you had any surgery to the cervix? Had you had any previous operations, anything that was of particular note early on in, before you became pregnant? Nothing. No, nothing at all. Um, I was – and we'll delve into this soon, but, yes, I was one of those, oh, we're not really quite sure why this has happened to you. I hadn't had um, any – like abnormal pap smears or anything like that um, that had led to needing surgery on the cervix. It was just all very, you know, run-of-the-mill, nothing that would raise any red flags. And I suppose we should preempt it and tell people that um, you know, Jess had suffered from a cervical insufficiency or shortening, so the cervix had opened up well before what you would expect, which would be sort of somewhere around 37 to 39 weeks. Yeah. Um, and, that uh, you know, obviously Lara decided to make an entrance a little bit earlier on the background of that. So... Uh, and often the reason why I asked in terms of whether you've had any surgery to the cervix is because, of course, the cervix can become quite short early on in pregnancy if you've had a history of um, surgery to the cervix. So a lot of women will know that they're having their regular cervical screening tests for HPV now, and part of that is to look for cervical cancer or, or the precancerous changes. We're actually not wanting to see cervical cancer. We want to see the pre-cervical cancer. And, and so sometimes as a result of that, in order to prevent these precancerous cells becoming cancer, as gynecologists will remove a portion of that cervix, a bit like removing a mole from the skin, in order to prevent the progression of those cells to become cancer. And, of course, the cervix is a – I often liken the cervix to like the neck of a balloon. So if you imagine a balloon is the uterus and, the, and where you blow the balloon up is the cervix, it's got a good size length and it's normally around sort of maybe three to four centimetres during pregnancy through the vast majority of pregnancy. And, of course, if we've taken sort of – maybe half a centimetre to a centimetre of the cervix out so that we've got all those cancerous cells, there is a predisposition to having cervical insufficiency or shortening. We would say that normally around about 5% of women will have a preterm birth, so a baby born before the 37th week. And if you've had these precancerous cells removed from the cervix, that can increase that up to around 6%. So it's not a huge, huge amount. But it's enough that, you know, obviously it does increase it a little bit and it predisposes women to cervical shortening. But, of course, in your case, Jess, that wasn't the case. No, not at all. And tell us the early part of the pregnancy. How did that all go? Um, I certainly wasn't one of those beautiful, glowing um, pregnant women. Uh, I was nauseated and vomiting from five weeks to 25 weeks. Um, I had three bleeds earlier on, um, nothing too major. I had a bleed at 9, 10 and 14 weeks um, and fortunately it was the doctor that I saw 
um, at 14 weeks when I had the bleed and I said, oh, look, if this is going to continue happening my entire pregnancy, at what point does not does it become non-concerning? And he said to me, you need to come in every time this happens um, because we just don't know. And had I not had that conversation with that doctor, I potentially um, would not have gone to hospital the day that I did that ultimately led with Lara being born. I think that's important. It's an important uh, in, a bit of information for people to hear. I mean, I think if you are having bleeding in pregnancy, no matter how small, it's always important to get in touch with the hospital. Um, you know, my patients obviously have access to me 24-7, but if you're going publicly, the same thing. You've got access to your, your hospital 24-7, and if at any point in time you're concerned about bleeding, you should... Uh, you should call call your doctor or call the hospital. And I think a lot of people get worried, you know. They go, oh, I, don't, I didn't want to disturb you. It was 2 o'clock in the morning. Well, you know, that's what we're here for. We're here to respond to those needs and wants that you might have. I, I don't want to be called like I have in the past by one patient who was in Bali and just wanted to give me a call at about 2 o'clock in the morning. Of course, it wasn't 2 o'clock in the morning, Bali time. But just to say, oh, Joe, I forgot to tell you I'm in Bali. But, uh, you know, if you're worried about stuff, certainly, please, please always, always give us a call. I think, um, you know, being a first pregnancy and first time mum, you don't want to be a drama farmer and overreact and you think, oh, should I, is this something, everything's weird and everything feels different. Um but certainly uh, I think the outcome that we've had with Lara um, was saved by me making sure of every little thing that was going on. Yeah, without a doubt. And I think you, you need to be in tune with your body and if you, and it's difficult because obviously first-time mum, first-time pregnancy, um, you might not know what's normal and what's abnormal, but if anything you feel is just not right, it's always best to, to tell. Yeah. So um, the first part of the pregnancy has gone really well. The first scan, I presume, went really well. Yeah, all my scans were um, great. Um, I actually presented at hospital at 18 weeks because I'd had um, Braxton Hicks consistently um, for a day just out of nowhere. Um, and I went into hospital. Um, I was due my morphology scan. Actually, it was 19 weeks. I was due my morphology scan within a couple of days. Um, the doctor did an examination and said, your cervix looks great. Um, just make sure that they check it during the morphology scan, um, which was the following week. So, yeah, we had that scan. Everything was beautiful. Um, what, what was the cervix length at that 20 weeks? 32 millimetres. Yeah, so that's normal. And, and often women will ask me what's normal and, and anything above 25 millimetres, technically speaking, is considered to be normal. Although as you approach that 25 millimetre mark, we'll often look at it a little bit more frequently in the, in the, in the intervening weeks just to make sure that it stays at that level. Uh, but less than 25 is considered to be starting to get on the lowish low sort of side. And so, but everything from your perspective at the 20 week scan, it, it was absolutely pun normal in terms of the cervical length at 32 weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Right, 32 millimetres. So everything presumably had gone. Did you know Lara was a girl? No, we kept it a surprise. And right up until um, she was born, uh, despite everything that was kind of happening, um, we really held on to not knowing who was in there as um, as something to kind of keep keep going and keep excited for, despite everything that was happening. 
And obviously Lara was born only at 25 weeks. Had you already sussed out names for boys and a girl before that point or did you have to make a quick rush, not a rush decision, (laughs) but a decision after she was born? Well, when she was born, um, I remember one of the NICU nurses after I'd been wheeled in um, saying, oh, does she have a name? And I said, she's not supposed to be here for 100 days. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) She doesn't have a name, no, but we had a list on the fridge that we were kind of working through. Um, But, no, we certainly hadn't narrowed either a girl or a boy name down by any stretch. So you'd had these bleeds at 9, 10 and 14 weeks and fortunately the doctor had sort of advised you that if you'd had anything, any concerns, you should uh, present. So tell us what sort of happened at the 25-week mark. So uh, it sort of made you wonder, uh, better, get, better get into the hospital. I'd gotten into um, a highly sought-after program at the Royal Brisbane, um, which is the birth centre, and you're allocated a midwife, um, and the idea is that that midwife follows you throughout your whole pregnancy, um, and it's like a a low-risk, low-intervention type program. So I'd had my appointment with my first appointment with the midwife on the Monday um, and met her and had a check-up and everything was great. uh, sorry, I should add, with this program, you can call the midwife day or night. You get their pager number and they um, they call you straight back. So I'd had that appointment on the Monday and then on the Thursday morning um, on waking, I went to the toilet as you do when you're pregnant um, and just when I wiped, there was just a, a bit of discharge that looked a bit odd to me. It wasn't it was kind of nondescript. It wasn't blood per se, but um, it was just like a dark brown discharge. Not a lot of it, um, but I, for whatever reason, call it intuition, I just saw it and I didn't question it. I didn't go back to bed and kind of sleep on it. I just called the midwife straight away and said, look, I've just had a bit of discharge. There's not a lot. Um, what do you think? And she said, I'm coming into the hospital anyway. It was about 6 o'clock in the morning at this stage. Um I've got a woman in labour, so just meet me at the hospital and I'll, I'll check you over. So I said to my husband, I woke him up and said, look, no big deal, just pop me up to the hospital, which um, where we live in uh, in Brisbane isn't far away at all. I said, I don't think you need to come in, just drop me off and I'll, I'll just have a quick check. So um, I went up and met my midwife. I put the pad on as you do um, to catch anything extra um, and there was nothing, it had stopped. Um, and the midwife said, look, I can't tell you what it is without seeing it, so you're going to have to go across and be um, examined by a doctor. No worries. So I trotted off um, all the while thinking that I was overreacting, Um, and a doctor came in um, who had an intern or a junior with him, and I said, look, I'm really sorry. I think I'm wasting your time. I can see you're really busy. And this doctor was really lovely and said, look, how are you supposed to know? It's your first pregnancy. Everything's weird. Um, And we kind of got to it. And the the junior doctor was doing the examination, and he was looking over her shoulder, um, and he said, "Uh, you just need to go let me have a look. And I thought, oh, no. And he kind of had a little look around and he said, your cervix looks really short. Um, And I said, okay. And he said, have you been having any pain um, or anything else other than this discharge? And I said, no. And he said, you're not going anywhere. Um, I'm going to get an ultrasound for you, um, an urgent ultrasound rather, um, and I'm going to get a wardsman to come and pick you up. You're not walking. 
So at that point, uh, I thought I should call my husband um, and he left work after I had told him there was nothing to worry about and um, he made his way to the hospital and fortunately he got there a couple of minutes before I was taken down to ultrasound um, and as soon as the sonographer put the probe on my belly, I could see um, that I did not have um, much cervix left and I could see that my membranes were bulging into my cervix. Um, so I had eight millimetres measurable left um, and I actually, if I coughed, had nothing left um, and little Lara in there was headbutting my funneled cervix, which was, you could see her doing it. Um, every time she headbutted my cervix, uh, my membranes would bulge into the funnel. Um, and she just looked at me, I could see it, and she looked at me and said, oh, this isn't good. Um, and that was kind of where it all began, really. Hey guys, Nikki here, co-founder at Tiny Hearts Education. At Tiny Hearts, our mission is to bring education to all Australian parents through first aid and birthing courses so you can move through pregnancy, childbirth and parenthood with confidence. To come along to one of our courses, head to tinyheartseducation.com and use the code PODCAST10 to get $10 off any course booking. That's all from me. Let's get back to Joe and today's story. What was sort of the, the things that the doctors did then soon after knowing that the cervix was short? I, um, after a, a really thorough ultrasound, um, often, uh, obviously because it was likely that Lara was going to come soon, um, I was returned to uh, the assessment centre and the doctor basically came in and said, look, this is what's happening. Um, we're going to steroid load you now uh, and you're going to be admitted. Um, so I had... Uh, big injection in the thigh of a steroid to help Lara's lungs um, and I was then moved up to the maternity ward um, and I was put in the bed closest to the nurse's station which was a little bit unnerving um, and that's basically where it kind of all started. So over the following, that was on the Thursday um, and I was admitted Thursday afternoon uh, and then on the Friday we had um, a chat with the NICU clinical nurse consultant came up and kind of didn't read us the right act but was realistic about what delivering a baby uh, at 25 weeks means, um, went into kind of survival rates, um, likely outcomes with uh, brain hemorrhages. Um, we spoke about necrotizing enterocolitis, which is a horrible complication that is often seen in um, especially in real uh, micro premature babies, um, which was, you know, which was pretty hard to hear when you're staring down the barrel of potentially delivering this very much wanted baby um, so early. Uh, and then on the Friday, I had the second dose of the steroids. And then over the weekend, um, it was kind of just business as usual, really. I had several doctors say to me, look, um, we, you're not on bed rest and we don't want you to lie in bed all day, um, but you're not allowed to leave the hospital. Um, we just take it easy. If you, want, if you need to leave the ward, do it in a wheelchair um, and we're just going to monitor you. I think there's a bit of, uh, bit of background. If you don't mind, I might take the opportunity just to give a bit of background to people. So one of the things about having a baby premature is that the lungs predominantly haven't developed quite well. Uh, our lungs are a funny thing if you think about them. They're, they're hollow sacs and so they're like, 
you know, if you imagine putting a, um, a, a if you imagine a, a tree with a trunk and the trunk being your trachea or your windpipe, and then all those little branches go out throughout the lungs. And you've got to imagine that, you know, that's a solid organ that's trying to splint open all these these uh, hollow sort of openings that allow air to come into the lungs and then allow the oxygen to diffuse from the air spaces into our bloodstream so that we can pick up that oxygen and obviously utilise it in terms of our vital organs through our blood cells passing that oxygen on to, to vital organs. And, of course, what happens is in, when a baby's inside the womb, those air sacs are not open and they can become quite sticky together. And the thing that keeps the air sacs from becoming sticky or from sticking together is this substance called surfactant, which allows the lungs to open up and expand to allow the oxygen to come in. And these steroids that we give patients aren't actually anabolic steroids, so they're not like the Arnold Schwarzenegger steroids that you want to give someone. They're more um, inflammatory-type steroids, so something called a corticosteroid, which actually helps the pneumocytes, which are the which are the cells within the lung, to produce this surfactant, and we'll often give women two doses of the injection, like you you got Jess, uh, sort of for twenty four hours apart, to allow the surfactant to increase in the amount that it, it's secreted from the lungs. In Oh, hopefully not the hope, but in the unlikely event or the likely event that the baby's born to help mature baby's lungs. And, of course, you know, a baby that, that is born early, as you've already alluded to, has a lot of trials to get through in terms of their development, not only in terms of their lungs but also their bowels and this thing that you call, talked about before called neck or necrotizing enterocolitis, but also in terms of the fragility of the blood vessels within the brain, which can lead to a little bit of a bleeding within the brain. And so hopefully, you know, all the great efforts that the NICU staff uh, did, you know, ultimately um, preserved and, and made sure that Lara got to where she where she is now. But we'll talk about that because it's an exciting thing. So you had the second dose of steroids and nothing really had happened. Oh, the other thing I did want to mention actually before we go on, a lot of people do get, um, they, also, they, they always think, oh, should I lie flat, should I lie flat, should I lie flat? And there's been a lot of evidence or a lot of research now with respect to having strict bed rest or alternatively, um, modified excess, modified sort of am, ambulation or modified activities. And in actual fact, bed rest doesn't increase the chance or, that you'll prolong the pregnancy. So most doctors wouldn't recommend lying completely flat. But we had that second dose of steroid and tell us what then soon happened after that. I also had a swab uh, done on that first day that predicts the, well, p- predicts probably isn't the right word, but it gives an indication of the likelihood of uh, preterm labour. And I believe it's relatively accurate um, and mine was negative. So on the Monday after a weekend of not doing a whole lot, um, I was seen by the doctor in the morning on the round um, and they kind of said, look, what's happening with you is it's a bit of an unknown. We don't know how long... um, essentially how long you're going to last. Sometimes women with eight centimetres of cervix left, you know, go into the 30-plus weeks. Um, I only live 10 minutes away from the hospital and with the added information that my swab was negative, the doctor said, I'm quite happy for you to go home if you're going to be more comfortable at home with the knowledge that you can get back here quickly if something happens. 
Uh, so that was on the Mondays. I've been in hospital four days. And I kind of said, look, if I could just stay an extra couple of days, uh, let's get through 26 weeks. Um, then after that, if everything's still okay, I'd be quite happy to go home. Um, and they were happy with that, said, yep, no problems. Um, and I actually went into labour two hours later on the ward. Yeah, I think that one of the tests that you had was a test called a fetal fibronectin. And we often use it in a setting of women who are having uh, contractions where we're uncertain about whether that woman has got true preterm labour or whether they've got a false labour. And basically the fibronectin is um, cells or it's actually it's actually protein that's secreted from uh, the the membranes of uh, that, that surround the baby. And if there's a disruption or an infection or an inflammation to that particular area or there's uterine contractions, you often get release of this fetal fibronectin into the secretions that go within the vagina and we can pick that up. And so we'll use that in the setting of a woman who's who's having false la- or having labour pains and we're trying to distinguish between the labour or the not the labour. Obviously, in your case, you weren't in labour, so the major thing was this cervix being quite short. And, of course, that can happen at any point in time. The waters can break and you can go into labour quite quickly. Did your waters break or did you just go straight into labour? No, I just went straight into labour. I'd had um, Braxton Hicks consistently all weekend, um, but that wasn't entirely unusual as I'd had them for a couple of weeks on and off before that. Um, So they'd been palpated by... probably five different midwives because I was so high risk. Um, It was really impressed on me early on that anything that happens, anything that comes out of you, anything that feels different, um, you need to show us or let us feel. So I'd had these Braxton Hicks. um, I was obviously quite anxious because I said, oh, will will I know if it's real contractions versus the Braxton Hicks? And they assured me, yes, yeah, you will know. So on the Monday um, after the doctor had said, you're right to go home, and I'd said, oh, can I please stay? Um, I'd gone downstairs with some friends to have a coffee. um, And as we were saying goodbye, I had kind of this twinge that I thought, oh, that feels a bit different. Um, Anyway, my husband wheeled me upstairs back to the ward and I got into bed and pretty much as soon as uh, I got into bed, I had another one of these, what I'm, we now know were contractions, um, went from my front to my back, um, went to the toilet and passed a big bowel motion. And I um, certainly don't know anything, you know, in the maternity world, but I know enough about medical stuff, being a paramedic, that, you know, a big bowel motion sometimes um means that there's things rocking and rolling. So I went over to the midwife station and said, look, I'm having these pains. I just um, I just went to the loo. Um, it feels different to anything that I've had before. And they said, yep, no worries. Come over, um, go and go back to bed and we'll, we'll come over. And my husband started timing these pains, which we now know are contractions, and they were three minutes apart from the start um, and really ramping up quite quickly. Um, I hit the the call bell multiple times and everyone started kind of coming in and um, to start off with, it was all very kind of low key, like, okay, yeah, we'll get you some Panadine and see if the pains go away. Um, but it really ramped up super, super quickly. And then when I started getting the urge to take all my clothes off, I thought, hang on a minute. <laughs> I'm, and I said to the doctor, I'm pretty sure I'm in labor. And after that, um, all hell broke loose, really. Uh, we had people coming in left, right and centre. Um, I 
got examined and the doctor could see that my membranes were bulging out of my vagina um, and I was taken down to birth suite quite quickly. Um, and from there they gave me a magnesium sulfate infusion um, f- to protect, try and protect Lara's brain, which was horrible. <laughs> um, I had a quick ultrasound and where she had been head down on the Thursday because she was so little and had had so much room, um, she'd flipped to being feet down. Um, so we're in the birth suite. I'm getting this horrible infusion, trying to keep my legs crossed to pr- try and get the medication in for her brain. Um, I'd started bleeding by that point and I could feel that the bleeding was getting worse. Um, I was hooked up to a CTG to monitor her heart rate, which was a bit hard because she was so little and moving around all the time. Um, And eventually uh, the surgeon came in, well, the surgeon was called in, I should say, um, because she was, her heart rate was decelerating with the contractions um, and the decision was made to hit the emergency button and that I would be, um, I would have a category one Caesar. I think um, it's important just to recap on a couple of things. So number one, obviously, magnesium sulfate. We often use that to prevent uh, preeclampsia or women who have got preeclampsia from having an eclamptic fit or a seizure in in pregnancy. Um, And uh, if they've got very high blood pressure and they're a bit, their, their brain is a little bit irritated in terms of irritability, in terms of a headache or their reflexes, they are quite brisk. We'll often use magnesium to suppress that irritability and prevent a seizure. But what they found was that when women were having this preeclampsia, that babies and having the magnesium, that babies born uh, had a decreased risk of cerebral palsy. So we now know that that provides some protection to the to the baby's brain in the setting of them being born quite early. And they only actually need to have the loading dose, but, I mean, ideally we might keep it on there for four hours or so in order to give a, a – or longer, to give a longer dose to allow the baby to get as much magnesium as possible. But um, obviously the doctors did that, but Lara had other, re- other reasons. She wanted to come out a lot quicker. Yeah, so we got the full the full twenty minute dose in for her, which was great, um, and it was from then that everything kind of ramped up. So the button was hit and the emergency alarm went off, and I thought, oh, <laughs> this is not good. <laughs> this is not good. Uh, as they were running with me down the hall to the theatre, um, obviously I had to say goodbye to my husband in the birth suite, um, and he was left in an empty room when while everyone ran with me down the hallway to the theatre um, and the doors opened and the theatre was chock full of people, like at least 20 people. And I thought, oh, this this still is not good. Um, anyway, they got me across to the table and they were um, giving me a spinal block and one of the midwives that was in the theatre had the little Doppler uh, on my belly and Lara's heart rate had recovered back to um, what was normal. And she just said, can we please get Dad in here heart rate is good, heart rate is holding good, can we please get Dad in here um, and downgrade to a cat too? So fortunately that's what happened. Um, Everyone kind of took a breath. Matt got to come in um, and Lara was born within 10 minutes of getting into the theatre. Wow, very quick. And the decision obviously for a vaginal, uh, sorry, for a caesarean section was on the basis that Lara was breached, yeah? Correct, yeah, yeah. 
And they made that clear from the outset because I um, that was one of my questions when I was first admitted, uh, is the preference for a caesarean birth in this instance, given that you can kind of you guys can kind of control it more. Um, and the doctor said, no, no, we in fact prefer premies to be delivered vaginally because it gives them a little bit of a, a little bit of a razz when they come out and they're in often in better condition than um, a cesarean birth. So look at the, at that point, it was, get, it was getting pretty dire. So I certainly didn't mind that she was going out the sunroof. <laughs> So it's always a little bit, I mean, obviously a bit of a shock then having a baby so, so early. And had you mentally in your own mind had a little bit of preparation because you'd met with the NICU consultant, the, the, the NICU nurse, and sort of had a, a bit of an understanding of what may have transpired? Or had you been reassured by that fibronectin test that probably said, oh, you're not going to go into labour in the next 24 uh, to uh, seven days and sort of just had dismissed it a little bit? No, I was I was quite aware of what was going on, and I knew eight millimeters of cervix wasn't a lot, um, and uh, I can't explain why I asked to stay in hospital on the Monday. Um, I certainly wasn't sleeping well; it was uncomfortable. The ward was full; it was really busy and noisy. So, look in hindsight, I must have known something wasn't. The call it intuition, like I must have known that something was about to happen because we're less than 10 minutes from the hospital where, where we live. Um, so I think over the court, having the benefit of having four days notice that this is something that could happen versus, you know, kind of going into hospital in labour at 25 weeks and five days, um, I guess I was as prepared for having a micro premie as you possibly could be. And tell us a little bit about Lara's stay in the neonative intensive care unit. What sort of, you know, what sort of trials did you go through? What sort of concerns were there? How did she sort of progress through those 14 weeks until you were fortunate enough to take her home? So she was born uh, weighing 766 grams um, and she was 33 centimetres long. So she was like a little bottle of Coke. I um, like to <laughs> explain her size and stature to people. Uh, so obviously she was absolutely tiny. Um, she was intubated for the first week um, and then after that they took the tube out and she was on CPAP for close to nine weeks. Um, so, in- that's a, so just for people's knowledge, when you intubate a baby, we're putting a tube down their throat in order to support their lungs and their breathing and predominantly the machine is actually breathing for the for an individual, and, and we obviously intubate people when they're having surgery. Um, you know, paramedics might intubate, you know, intubate people on the side of a road in terms of trauma, and uh, and you know, in intensive care, you'll often see patients who are intubated, and the machine supports their breathing, so it causes the in and out of of respiration. When babies are fortunate enough that their lungs are quite mature enough that they can actually breathe on their own, then we use something called CPAP, which provides positive pressure that sort of splints open those air sacs that I talked about before to allow the baby to breathe, but that at the last, when they're breathing, that the lungs don't completely collapse or the air sacs don't completely collapse. And it allows a little bit of autonomy in breath to allow to be, allow the baby to slowly breathe up but at the same time also supports them a little bit like a rescue blanket, so to speak. That was quite good that even only a week she was on CPAP. That's awesome. Yeah, she was a feisty little thing from the outset. 
Yeah. So, look, we had a – I'm well aware that um, a lot of babies that are born so preterm have quite hard NICU journeys. Um, we, was, we were quite fortunate. It was – Almost a case of she was she was born early um, and that she just had to grow in the hospital and then we eventually got to take her home. So uh, all of her brain scans that uh, they do in the first week and then um, at six weeks, I think, were all clear. There was no bleeds. Um, her bowels were all working beautifully. Um, and it was just ultimately, it was just a time thing for her. Um, she just needed to grow and get stronger. She needed her lungs to grow more so she could come off of the CPAP. Um, and slowly but surely she, you know, they preterm babies go backwards like all babies from birth. So I think she got down to nearly 500 grams um, with the weight loss after birth. Um, but, you know, she clawed her way back um, and we were discharged after 98 days um, at the hospital. So she had 12 weeks in the NICU and then two weeks in special care. Um, two days before her due date, she came home weighing two, um, exactly two kilos more than she was born. So she was 2766 grams when we brought her home. Um, right. and yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we were, we were incredibly fortunate in her trajectory through the NICU it's still I I think it's hard to describe to anyone that hasn't actually gone through it Um, it's still a really long time 14 weeks is a really long time to have a baby in in hospital Um, but now we've been home for nearly 15 weeks with her and it feels like she's been here for years yeah and look you're 100% correct I mean I, I before I started my obstetric training I actually was at NICU Reg at the Royal Women's Hospital in Melbourne and, you know, the little bubbers really, a lot of them do uh, have great difficulty, not only in terms of all the stuff that I mentioned before, but, you know, infections, uh, coming on and off the, the, the ventilator for, for breathing, um, concerns with their eyes. A lot of them can get problems with their eyes and their hearing because of some of the medication we give them. So, I mean, Lara is a testimony not only to obviously modern medicine but also to the strength of her herself and uh, you guys as well. Yeah, and it's so hard when you have a baby in hospital for so long. Um, you know, it, you're pretty much packaging up, well, not even packaging up, you're, you're giving the most precious thing in the world to uh, building and the people that work there to look after um, for 14 weeks. And it's such a hard time, but, God, it's good to walk out those doors with your baby at the end of the day. Definitely. And um, so obviously, uh, you know, maybe sometime in the future you might wish to consider another bubba. So have you had a bit of a debrief with the doctors in terms of what the plan would be for any subsequent pregnancy? Yeah. Um, Yes. Answer to the first part of the question, yes, we would love to have another baby or two. Um, Despite going through all of that, um, Lara is such a little smiley delight and that she really deserves a little brother or sister. So obviously I wouldn't be low risk and I wouldn't be going through the birth centre at the Royal, which is really disappointing. But uh, I think ultimately for me it would mean a, a cervical stitch early on in the piece in a very monitored pregnancy versus my um, kind of go home and grow your baby type scenario that I had in the first instance. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, you know, a lot of people do get 
I suppose, concerned, I suppose, if you're sort of saying disappointed that you wouldn't be in the in the arm with the midwives. But at the end of the day, irrespective of whether you're cared for by a midwife in the, in, in sort of the, the one-to-one midwifery programs, if you're in, you know, in the public sector and you've got a mixture of caregivers, whether they be midwives or doctors, or if you're going privately and you're seeing a midwife for mostly pregnancy or an obstetrician during pregnancy, you know, the pregnancy is a finite period of time. And like you said, now you've got 14 weeks with Lara in your arms and yet Niku, it will eventually become a distant memory. The cesarean section of the Lara will become a distant memory. And certainly, yeah, you know, when you're celebrating her 21st birthday, you'll hardly even remember the time. I don't think you will. I, 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 speak, to my, I speak to a lot of my, my grandparents' of parents who are with, you know, come along to bet, bet, visits for my appointments. You know, you really have got so much of the history of your child growing up, that disappointment sort of pales and dim significant to the amount of joys that you experience of your child. Um, and so I think the lesson from all of this really is what you've sort of highlighted is really just understanding your body and, and speaking out when you know potentially there's something going on. So, yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of my friends, um, I, I'm at the age where everyone's having babies and I, I think a lot of my friends have taken from that that, you know, if something doesn't feel right, go in and get it checked um, because I think our outcome with our beautiful girl potentially could have been a lot different had I uh, not gone in on that Thursday um, and then gone into labour with three-minute apart contractions, um, potentially at work or at home. Um, and I, I could have been staring down the barrel of some of my colleagues delivering my tiny baby in the back of an ambulance. And I think there's also a valid point here. I mean, there will be many times where I think a clinician, whether it be a midwife or a doctor, might not necessarily um, suggest a speculum examination. But I think in the setting that you had and also if you've got any bleeding, it's really important, particularly after sort of 20 weeks, twenty, particularly after 24 weeks, that, um, you know, a speculum examination is done just to see that the cervix is in short. I know that in my own practice, if a woman presents with any sort of uh, uh, loss from the vagina, you know, always, you're always important to measure the cervix or look at the cervix, whether that be via a speculum examination or also an ultrasound scan, just to give us a bit of an understanding that the cervix is definitely long and that there isn't that potential risk of preterm birth. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Jess, thank you so much for sharing your story. And, um, you know, as I said before, it's, it is an, it's an absolute miracle that Lara's with you. And I hope uh, you, you've given the people at the, the NICU nursery there uh, a big hug and big kiss and a, and, and a couple of chockings on the way because that was <laughs> a fantastic job. Yes, they're all little angels in there. And uh, I really appreciate that it's a it's a different world. It's like its own little universe and you don't really know it exists until you're a part of it, but once it's in the past, you're certainly glad that you were there. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode and I certainly hope you found it enjoyable. Um, you can follow myself uh, or at Tiny Hearts via our Instagram or Facebook page, um, of course, at Tiny Hearts Education 
or alternatively at Dr. Joseph, at, uh, Dr. Joseph Scroy. You can also jump on my website, uh, www.drjoseph.com.au. I've got some information there about cervical insufficiency, which anyone might want to read about. Um, look, we have these podcasts running every fortnight, so you can listen to the Bump Birth and Beyond podcast uh, every fortnight on a Thursday. I hope you found it very enjoyable. Please hit subscribe button on the podcast player to get any notifications of any new podcasts that we've got. Jess, thanks once again for your time. Thank you for having me.